This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. As humans, we're pretty obsessed with space. For all of our history, humans have looked to the sky as somewhere sacred, the home of the celestial spheres, to put it lightly, but also as a place that's useful. The stars have formed maps, astrologies, theologies. Charting the brightness of stars and the movement of planets is what revolutionized the way we think about ourselves and our gods. Observations about the physical nature of the universe is what helped put humans in our place, what made us realize hundreds of years ago that no matter how important we may feel, we are not the center of it all. Stare into space and you'll know we're just little specks of life on one little planet in one little corner of the Milky Way. Space is also a forum for imagination. In science fiction, writers use space as a stage for playing out possible realities and for critiquing our myopic human cultures. But maybe because the cosmos makes us feel so dang insignificant, we've always had a desire to explore it for real. To understand it in any way that helps us wrap our tiny, puny little heads around why the universe is the way it is. Fiction aside, we've been trying to make sense of the stars for millennia. In the face of the vast and beautifulness of space, we crave rational data. The very earliest human civilizations kept meticulous maps of the stars. A thousand years ago, Egyptians and Chinese astronomers were recording the details of supernovas. In the past 100 years, we've launched probes and rovers and telescopes and humans into space to help explore the universe and explain it. Some of this impulse to head to space is certainly about trying to explain and understand the vastness of space and who we are in it. And some of the motivations to head into space have shades of conquest and colonization. Americans were excited to plant a national flag on the moon, after all. And you all know that one line. Space, the final frontier. The modern exploration of space is often seen as a macho endeavor. In films, TV, and often in our history books, the astronauts who head into space are the manliest of manly men. The United States government has just asked us to save the world. We're talking about space, right? Outer space? This is like deep blue hero stuff. I'm there. I'm with you. And the scientists who send them into orbit are universally men, too. So you're telling me you can only give our guys 40 Five hours? That brings them to about there. Gentlemen, that's not acceptable. Whoa, whoa, guys. Power is everything. Power is everything. It doesn't matter whether the stories are fictional or based on real life. Many of our pop culture space sagas center on brave men. This will come as quite a shock to my crewmates. And to NASA into the entire world. But I'm still alive. Surprise. There are some notable exceptions, of course. This organism gets off the planet, it'll kill everything. The company doesn't care about that. They just want it for their bioweapons division, okay? So we can't let them come here. I love that Ellen Ripley. But in reality, modern space exploration has involved some brilliant women and lots of collaborative work. Not lone cowboys single-handedly saving the world, but rooms full of people working together to find a solution. Despite rampant race and gender discrimination, women have worked and continue to work in the rooms of NASA's number crunchers, who figure out how to send people and machines into space. Despite being excluded from missions for decades, women have trained to be astronauts since the very first days of space travel. And despite being often left off the screen, women are an integral part of the space exploration teams today. Today's episode of Propaganda features three real-life stories of women in space. First up, we hear about the forgotten history of American women who aspired to be astronauts, but never got the chance to go to space. Then we hear about the African-American women who worked as brilliant mathematicians at NASA in the 1960s. Finally, we talk with the author of an article about women who want to go to space today, the crew of the future-looking Mars One mission. Stay tuned.
When Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon in 1969, he uttered a carefully scripted and immortal phrase. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. But what if that hadn't been one small step for a man, but one small step for a woman? Writer and bioethicist Elizabeth Yuko brings us the story of the women who wanted to become NASA astronauts in the 1960s and how they were shut out of the possibility to ever fly to the moon. Last month, an all-female Russian astronaut crew spent eight days together in a mock spaceship to determine how a group of women would interact during space travel as a test run for a 2029 mission to the moon. Sadly, at a press conference preceding the experiment, reporters opted to ask questions on how they would manage without men and makeup for eight days. As astronaut in training Anna Kuzmal noted, we are doing work. When you're doing work, you don't think about men and women. Unfortunately, this treatment of women astronauts is as old as the space program itself. In the early days of space travel, much was unknown. For example, scientists were uncertain about even the basic idea of whether a human could safely exit the Earth's atmosphere, much less what would happen to the human body in space. Sending people into space was the ultimate in human experimentation. What we did know, however, was basic physics. The more weight contained in an aircraft, the more energy and fuel would be needed to propel it from Earth, sustain it in space, and safely return. Because of this, women made the best candidates for space travel. It wasn't rocket science. On ships heading into orbit, every ounce matters. Women in general weigh less, eat less food, consume less oxygen, and therefore required less fuel to get into space. Despite the math being in their favor, women were excluded from being considered as astronauts during NASA's earliest days. These days, women are still a minority at NASA. The team that engineered this summer's spectacular flyby of Pluto was 25% women, very likely the most women included on any team in NASA history. Back before humans had gone into space, scientists wondering what conditions the human body would face in space put aspiring astronauts through a battery of tests. In 1959, Dr. William Randolph Randy Lovelace II was put in charge of performing experiments on potential astronauts to ensure that they were able to physically and mentally withstand any space-related obstacles and devise the most sophisticated examination to date. NASA called the experiment Project Mercury and recruited Air Force and Navy pilots to undergo the astronaut tests. But because women were banned from being Air Force or Navy pilots, women were excluded from the original astronaut trials. Lovelace, a scientist through and through, was curious about how women performed on the space tests. Since the military pilot pool had no women, he independently sought out civilian female pilots and asked them to be a part of his experiment. He also had to find someone to foot the bill. Pilot and business person Jacqueline Cochran served as the project advisor and personally funded the women's testing expenses. His first recruit was Geraldine Jerry Cobb, an accomplished pilot. Together, Cobb and Lovelace recruited 19 other female pilots to take the tests. The experiments were grueling and sometimes bizarre. One test required them to swallow three feet of rubber tubing. In another, a researcher injected ice water into their ears. Researchers noted that all of the female testees complained significantly less than their male counterparts. Many of the women scored as highly, if not higher, than the men. At the end of it all, 13 of the 20 female pilots passed the tests. The women were called the Mercury 13, though they also went by First Lady Astronaut Trainees, or FLATS, reflecting not only their pioneering status, but conveniently, also a type of sensible shoe. One of the 13 women, Jean Nora Stumbau, later Jessen, was interviewed in the second season of the PBS documentary show Makers and discussed the extent of the testing involved. Jessen explained, they did 75 different tests and obviously they had no idea what in the world they needed to test for, so they did lots of strange things. Flat Wally Funk also describes some of the physical tests on Makers saying, there was not one hair, tooth, skin, fingernails throughout my whole body that was not tested, poked, prodded. 
They were finding out what every girl in that program was made of, just like they did to the guys. Lovelace also sent some of the women to a separate site to undergo a series of psychological tests to see how they would fare in a situation with no human contact. The final test involved immersing the participant in a soundproof isolation tank filled with skin temperature water, which is 93.56 degrees Fahrenheit, achieving total sense deprivation. Previous experimentation involving several hundred participants indicated that six hours was the absolute limit that a human being could tolerate these conditions before the onset of hallucinations. After spending nine hours and 40 minutes in the tank, Cobb's trial was terminated by research staff. Two women each spent more than 10 hours in the tank before the staff concluded the trial. The men of the Mercury 7 did not tolerate this particular phase of testing well, despite the fact that their sensory isolation testing was significantly easier. They were placed in a soundproof dark room instead of a float tank. Famed Mercury 7 astronaut John Glenn happened to discover a pad of paper and a pen in the room during his trial and was therefore able to write poetry to pass the time. But even then, he only lasted three hours. At the height of the Cold War, when a primary goal of the space program was for America to appear stronger and more resilient than their Soviet counterparts, many argued that sending a woman to space would send the wrong message comparable to putting a chimp in space. If a woman, or chimp, could make it into space, some thought, it really was not that great of a feat. For that to be the case, it had to be done by a man. Even as Alan Shepard Jr., one of the male Mercury 7 astronauts, was getting ready for his historic trip to space in 1961, Lovelace had not given up on his female participants. He began the next phase of testing at the Naval Station in Pensacola, Florida. Lovelace knew that in order to be seriously considered as potential astronauts, the women in his program had to undergo the next level of aerospace medical testing, trials involving jet aircraft. In anticipation of the final phase of testing, some women quit jobs, made arrangements for their families, and trained hard. At the last minute, the U.S. Navy denied them access to the base unless Lovelace could obtain NASA's approval for the testing in writing. He could not, and the trial was canceled. Further complicating the situation was the fact that President Dwight D. Eisenhower had previously made a decision that only jet test pilots would be considered as potential astronauts, which immediately excluded women who were still barred from Air Force training schools. In the summer of 1962, the Lovelace program ended. President Lyndon B. Johnson's interest in putting forth what is perceived to be a strong masculine image of an astronaut trumped his concern for equal opportunities for women. At the bottom of a memo about the program, the vice president scrawled, Stop this now, in uncharacteristically large handwriting. Cobb and fellow flat Janie Hart took their case to Congress, but were not able to overcome the obstacle of being denied the opportunity to become jet test pilots, and therefore, astronauts. Bernice Stedman, a commercial pilot who had learned to fly before she learned to drive, said the hardest part was not any of the physical discomforts, but the disappointment that came after finding the testing program had ended. In a biographical sketch on the Mercury 13 from the International Women's Air and Space Museum in Cleveland, Ohio, Stedman said, We were sworn to secrecy about the program. We didn't know how many other women were being tested or who they were until an article about the testing appeared in Life magazine in 1963. Also in 1963, Russia was responsible for putting the first woman in space, Valentina Tereshkova. The United States didn't send a woman into space for another 20 years with Sally Ride. Since then, about 40 women have flown into orbit as NASA astronauts, but there have only been four Russian female astronauts in space. While the recent eight-day all-female trial in Russia was promising, the questions these women faced indicates that attitudes towards women in space haven't changed all that much since the 1960s. writer and bioethicist Elizabeth Yuko.
You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're talking all about real life women in space. <laughs> Just this month, Barack Obama awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, America's highest civilian honor, to a 97-year-old mathematician named Katherine Coleman Goble Johnson. You might not have heard her name in history class, but Catherine did some life-saving work back in 1962. In her job at NASA, she calculated the trajectory for astronaut John Glenn's pioneering space mission, the first ever orbit of Earth. Catherine co-authored the research and equations that laid out how to send Glenn into orbit and how to bring him back home safely. Johnson is just one part of a cadre of African-American women who did crucial calculations for the space workforce during the Cold War. Author Margot Lee Shetterly tells the stories of these women in her new book, Hidden Figures, the African-American women mathematicians who helped NASA and the United States win the space race. My dad is, um, he's now retired um, NASA research scientist. And so um, I grew up in Hampton, Virginia. And Hampton is the site of the very first installation of what would become NASA, but at the time when it was founded, uh, back in basically during World War I, it was called the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. Um, so, but my dad um, started work at uh, the Langley Research Center um, in, uh, in 1964 as a co-op and then 1966 full-time. And um, so I grew up around, you know, a lot of people who worked at NASA, um, who were engineers or research scientists or mathematicians, and a lot of whom were African-American and a lot of whom were women and a lot of whom were both African-American women. So it sort of seemed normal to me. I, you know, I grew up in, in something that, uh, you know, over time I realized to be very unusual. Um, but uh, for me as a kid, the face of science was quite diverse. You know, the federal government uh, and government-sponsored science uh, proved to be uh, robust and interesting and very good careers for a lot of African Americans and a lot of women, um, and uh, a, a great way to, you know, sort of get that a piece of that American dream and, and have a middle-class lifestyle and bring up their kids, you know, my generation, um, with a lot of the... Um, you know, access to education and comfort and things like that, that that everybody, you know, across America wants for their children. What what kind of challenges did women working at NASA face at that time? And did they find community with each other in some significant ways? Right. Well, um, so we before we talk about the 1960s, we have to go back to the 1930s and 40s, which is really the most uh, probably even more startling part of the story, which is that um, this story starts 20, 25 years before the space program. So uh, before there was space, there was aeronautics. And um, so before there was the National Air and Space Administration, there was the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. And uh, starting in 1935, there at the Langley Research Center, which was then called the Langley uh, Memorial Aeronautical Laboratory in Hampton, Virginia, um, engineers said, you know, this, this, uh, there, you know, it's a very, as you might imagine, um, a very mathematically intense process. They were testing planes, making planes better, improving planes. I mean, this was sort of, you know, the early part of the 20th century when the airplane was still relatively new. And, um, there was a huge amount of data associated with that. The engineers made the decision to, uh, perform kind of a human experiment, which was to see if, uh, a computing pool, the same way that there was a stenographic pool, and they'd have uh, women who um, took different parts of typing assignments and things like that, if a computing pool might be a, an efficient way to process the data that came from aeronautical research. Well, lo and behold, um, the first five women who were in this pool uh, were smart math graduates, um, former teachers in many cases, and it was a success. Um, they started steadily started hiring more women, um, and it, it, that to that point until 1943, they were all white women. What happened in 1943 
is that the demands for computing power and uh, smart female computing power were so great and you know with men going off to fight um, and at the same time there were skyrocketing demands for um, faster better safer airplanes uh, they hired a group of African-American women and this is after the pressure from uh, a civil rights leader named A. Philip Randolph. He basically uh, pressured Roosevelt into issu issuing something called Executive Order 8802, which said, thou shalt not discriminate um, in the war industries and the federal government. So it was, it was after that executive order, uh, 18 months later, that the first group of segregated, uh, segregated group of African-American women um, mathematicians started working at the Langley Memorial Aeronautical Laboratory in Hampton, Virginia. Um, so, so this is all a very long backstory. But um, so, those women, uh, they did the same work as their white counterparts, but they were forced to use, as you might imagine, in the segregated South, uh, colored-only bathrooms, colored-only cafeteria, and of course, in the town itself. Um, it was segregated, you know, lunch counters, um, schools, hospitals, everything, every aspect of life was segregated. Um, but this was an opening for those women. So the job of computer isn't something that really exists these days. Can you tell us about what these women would have been doing um, at NASA? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, you know, it's, it's only relatively recently that a computer refers to a piece of electronic hardware and not to a person who frequently was a woman. Um, and, you know, the job title, as, as it indicates, is someone who computes a computer. They would simulate flights by having, let's say, a scale model of an airplane, put it in a wind tunnel. Instead of flying the plane through the air, they would have giant turbine, turbines that blew the air over the, uh, over the, uh, the model of the airplane. They had all kinds of... Um, instruments actually that they designed themselves specifically to uh, capture and record basically every aspect of either the plane or um, the model in the wind tunnel. And um, there, there's a huge amount of, you know, so a huge amount of uh, data that came out of this. So some of the women uh, were in charge of uh, looking at these instruments and recording the data. So imagine, you know, looking at uh, some kind of instrument every, you know, two minutes or every 30 seconds or whatever the interval is, and taking recording and putting it in a huge data sheet, just marking it down. And then some of the women uh, did more theoretical work. So instead of necessarily putting a plane in a wind tunnel, and uh, taking data and sort of doing this empirical work, maybe they would take their knowledge of geometry and trigonometry and um, multivariate calculus and uh, physics, and uh, using higher mathematics would come up with theoretical ideas about uh, how the plane would be better and how to um, make changes and improve the aircraft. So there, there was this full spectrum, um, everything from, you know, sort of simple calculations to extremely high-level math that, that these women did over time. So for your book, Hidden Figures, you talked to um, some of the women who worked as computers at NASA during this time. How did they describe their feelings towards their job and the work environment? Well, I mean, I, the thing about it is, you know, and I was saying that you look at Mad Men or, you know, you look at the norms of the 40s and 50s and the 60s and what's acceptable then is simply not acceptable now, you know. And it wasn't that, you know, that they didn't acknowledge those issues, you know what I mean? And that and that people were fighting to change those. You know, a lot of, of these women were very active in their communities, very active in organizations that were fighting for civil rights and that were working in their communities to make these changes. Um, so, uh, you know, th there there is simply, uh, of course, they, you know, acknowledged uh, the, the uh, you know, these, these horribly difficult parts of, of going to work each day, you know, in that in that situation. But at the same time, uh, they loved their jobs. I mean, this is sort of a, you know, one of these things where it's glass half empty, glass half full. 
uh, because when these openings happened, you know, when these jobs first started to become available, this was a new thing for women and for African-Americans and particularly for African-American women, you know, where if you uh, were a math graduate and you were a talented young woman who wanted to make your math, your mark in math or science, the way it was going to happen was in the classroom. I mean, these this was the expectation for even the most talented of, of women coming out of uh, school with an undergraduate math degree or even a graduate math degree for that matter. Uh, and all of a sudden, here's a job where you're going to be a professional mathematician. You know, you're going to challenge yourself and, you know, d apply these things that perhaps you learned in college and actually work on something that is really exciting. I mean, John Glenn's flight, um, you know, they're getting ready. They're counting down for his flight, which was in February of 1962. And, um, you know, as part of the final checklist before he he took off for this pioneering orbital flight that really changed the balance in the space race and in the Cold War between the United States and the Russians, um, one of his checklist items was have the girl, and at this point all of the women, regardless of color, um, were called girls. Uh, he said, have the girl to double-check the numbers. You know, and the girl was Katherine Johnson. She had been there since 1953. You know, if you ask her, it's about her experience uh, over the years as a mathematician. Um, it's exuberant, you know. I mean, it's not that they don't acknowledge the difficulties. They do. But at the same time, um, these were people who took their work and their jobs and this opportunity very seriously and gave their all to it. And then, of course, just this month is the really exciting news that Katherine Johnson was awarded the Presidential Medal of uh, Freedom for her work. I mean, that, that was just so exciting to see her there. And so in your, in your work, you interviewed a lot of women who worked in NASA's space program. And I'm wondering what stories resonated with you personally. Can you share with us another story of a, of a specific woman that, that really connected with you? There's a woman whose name was Dorothy Vaughn, and Dorothy Vaughn, so back in the days, uh, you know, the early days, the 1940s and 1950s particularly, um, the black women were working in a segregated group. Originally, uh, there was a white woman or, and uh, sort of a section head and an assistant section head, but the two managers were white women, and the women who worked in the group were black. Um, but eventually, a woman named Dorothy Vaughn, who came to Langley in 1943 and had been a math teacher for many years before that, um, but like so many people, she came to, um, to made her way to Hampton during the war. Um, Dorothy Vaughn uh, eventually rose to be the head of that group, the West Computers. Um, this was in 1951 that she was officially made section head of that group. Um, and what that meant is that she was a manager. And, um, you know, I've interviewed so many people, um, black and white, male and female, and so many people have memories of Dorothy Vaughn as being both a very, very good mathematician, but also a very good manager and somebody who was an advocate um, for not just the black women in her group, but also uh, white women who were not in her group, who perhaps were subject to um, you know, the same thoughts about women and their limits and their capabilities. Um, and why does that resonate with you personally? Why does she stand out so much? And when, when you talk to her or talk about her, what, what does it make you feel? Uh, you know, I think it was, I think it's probably the idea um, that back so long ago, you know, I mean, and, you know, when I first started my career, I worked on Wall Street, you know, and I was an African-American woman in a largely um, male and predominantly white workplace. Um, I just imagine as a woman um, in, you know, what was then like the 90s and 2000s in a workplace like that, um, what would it be like in 1943? you know, completely unknown, you know, never having worked in an integrated situation um, in a state where segregation is the the, the law of the land um, and having sort of, you know, everyday courage, I guess I would say, I'd call it, um, you know, to take take these these this 
the the slights, you know, to have to go to the segregated bathroom, but then to have the courage to really advocate for the women around you. Um, you know, I mean, that's the kind of thing that you, you kind of hope that you, in, in some measure, you know, have inherited. I think that idea of having everyday courage, regardless of what job you work in, is a really special one. I think everybody has to kind of find um, courage to advocate for themselves and for other people, even if they're, you know, behind a desk in any office or regardless of what your job is, even if you're not a rocket scientist. (laughs) When I think about these women, and there were, you know, there were hundreds of women, um, you know, all told, you know, if you look at the total group, black and white, um, hundreds of women doing this work. Um, But I think it's the everyday courage to be in a new situation um, where the expectations are very low, perhaps, and to stick with it and just, you know, through force of will and through your own talent, decide that you're going to, you know, defy those expectations. You know, that that takes a lot of guts. It takes a lot of guts and a lot of gumption. And I feel like... um, You know, I I find these women to be role models. I've learned so much from their stories. That was author Margot Lee Shatterley. Her book, Hidden Figures, comes out from HarperCollins in fall of 2016. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today we're talking about real-life women in space. Ever since humans found out about other planets, we've fantasized about traveling there ourselves. Now, several groups are proposing projects that would send real-life people to Mars in just a decade or two, after they can work out the logistical details. Here's the pitch from maybe the best-known of these projects, Mars One. It is Mars One's goal to establish a permanent human settlement on Mars. Human settlement on Mars is the next great leap for humankind. This exploration of the solar system will bring the human race closer together. Mars is the next step in the voyage into the universe. Sounds pretty good, right? To accomplish this first human colony supposedly launching in 2026, Mars One opened up their coveted future Mars colony spots to anyone in the world who wanted to apply. The plan is to fund the trip primarily through advertising and by recording the whole experience as a reality show. This might raise eyebrows among skeptics, that would be me, but thousands of people jumped at the chance to be part of Mars One. This past spring, the nonprofit running the project narrowed down the applicant pool to 100 brave, aspiring space travelers. Writer Jessica Franken interviewed five of the women who want to be part of Mars One for an article in the Nerds issue of Bitch. Her article is called Meet the Martians. Five women from the Mars One space program share their thoughts on leaving Earth forever. Oh yeah, it's a one-way ticket to Mars. Jessica has a deep interest in science. For her master's degree, she studied the intersection of gender, fiction, and public perceptions of science. I called up Jessica Franken at her home in Minneapolis to talk about why so many people want to go to Mars. So Jessica, for your article, you interviewed uh, five women who want to leave Earth to head for Mars on a future possible mission to Mars. Can you tell me about what got you interested in this potential future Mars exploration project to begin with? Yeah, it's it's a fascinating experiment with some really remarkable candidates involved. Um, and so Mars One, I'll just give you a little overview. It's a little different than some of the other, um, you know, potential journeys to Mars that are out there. It's a nonprofit, and their goal is to establish a permanent human settlement on Mars with the first four-person crew leaving as early as 2026 or 2027. Um, so not, they're not the only people with, with Mars in their sights, certainly, but they've gained a lot of media attention. And I think that um, there are several reasons for that. You know, the funding model is definitely one. They're attempting to finance the journey largely through donations and advertising revenue. And second is that the trips to Mars are one way. So they'll send additional four-person crews every 26 months, but none of the travelers will return to Earth. 
Um, and another reason I think that people have been really picking up on this story is that they put out an open call to anyone in the world who wanted to apply to be an astronaut with Mars One. So there's this really wide variety of people who've made it to the current round of 100 finalists. And it's not just, um, it's not just people with scientific and military backgrounds, and it's not just people from countries with established human spaceflight capabilities. Um, so coming from a sort of feminist perspective, what interested me in the topic was the exploring the philosophy of you know, opening space up to people who haven't traditionally been able to see themselves there. And I think it's part of a larger discussion about democratizing space. So with the rapid rise of the commercial space industry and falling technology costs, the hope is that more people will have access to things um, like microsatellites. So there's this, um, it's now you know, within the realm of possibility for say a high school science class to raise enough money to send an experiment into near space on a microsatellite. Um, so, but human spaceflight is obviously much more expensive and complicated. And, um, you know, space tourism is set to become more common, but that'll be at least initially restricted to people with pretty massive disposable incomes. What's interesting about the Mars One project that you mentioned is it's a more democratic approach, that there are people who wound up in the final 100 candidates that were chosen potentially for these this future colony um, who wouldn't have ever been chosen by NASA or the Russian space program as the top cosmonaut. So can you tell us a little bit about like the women that you interviewed and uh, what makes them different potentially than the typical astronaut that we've seen? Yeah, I mean, it's like this idea of quote unquote ordinary people getting the chance to settle another planet, even though you know, when you talk to the candidates, they're, they're not ordinary. They're, they're extraordinary people who are really passionate about this cause. Um, and so the five people that I talked to, were, they were really inspiring. And I had, you know, like a, a contact high from their passion. They were great. Um, I talked to Kenya Armbrister, who is a project manager for a pharmaceutical company. Um, and Sue Ann Pien, who is an actress and she works at a technology firm and Sabrina Suravec, who's an English teacher and artist in Japan. So those were three people who were not coming to this with like a scientific background. And then I talked to Kelly Girardi, who's a business development specialist for a rocket technology company, and Laura Smith Velasquez, who's a human factors engineer for an aerospace company. And so they were more, um, you know, already involved in aerospace. And so I really wanted to talk to people with coming from, um, you know, a variety of backgrounds, including people who already work in space science and those who work outside of it. I mean, right now, this mission is all theoretical. It's, it seems like mm -hmm. missions to Mars are always 20 years out. In the next 20 years, <laughs> yep. we're going to be sending somebody. Um, but there are actually people going to space right now who are tourists who can afford to shell out for that. We've got reality show stars. We've got Russian billionaires, people who can pay a lot of money to get up into orbit. Um, so I just think that's interesting to consider as we're looking forward to, like, what is the future of space? Is it something that um, is going to be a place for the super rich? You know, obviously there are immense costs associated with going. So, um, you know, I read this interview with Elon Musk, who is the head of SpaceX, and he's working on um, a Mars mission too. And he's sort of like, the, the first people who go will be the people who can afford to go. You know, and on one hand, you can understand why that is. But on the other hand, you know, it sets up this... Um, you know, the situation in which the settling of a new world, like the first off-Earth human colony, um, you know, is just the richest people from Earth. And so, um, you know, when I was talking to Kelly for the interviews, she said something, she talked a lot about the importance of diversifying access to human space travel and not just to, you know, sending satellites. And she said something like, I bet I can find it. She said, we can't expect to have a super productive future in space if there's no current relation between normal citizens and the space industry. And so, you know, she said, even though we know conceptually that technologies we use, like GPS, things like that, those come from the space program and they're a benefit to us from the space program. You know, Kelly says that it's difficult for people to really buy in unless they can imagine themselves as part of it. And I should say just briefly that NASA, you know, looks incredibly different 
from how it did 50 years ago. And so I think that there are people who can see themselves as NASA astronauts now that maybe wouldn't have thought of it if they grew up a generation ago. It um, looks looks incredibly different, meaning there's more women, there's more people of color at NASA than there yes. were in those in those, you know, photos of the NASA space room in the 1950s. For sure. Yeah, so the the most recent astronaut class at NASA from 2013 is the first that achieved gender parity, and so it was four women and four men. Um, so, you know, I think that that's, you know, there are a lot of people who see people who look like them, you know, working on the International Space Station, and that's a relatively new thing. Well, and the importance of representation in sort of thinking about and conceptualizing space travel, I think some people might think that sounds kind of silly because, you know, we're not sending a lot of humans uh, to Mars anytime in the next few years. But it kind of it kind of relates to an interest in science and math and technology. You know, the people who um, you might not ever aspire to go to Mars if you don't see yourself as an astronaut. But if you don't see yourself as an astronaut, you also might... Uh, never wind up uh, thinking about being a physicist or a mathematician or getting into science in that realm. And I know that you did, you've did you done some work in a master's program on the relationship between uh, gender, uh, fiction, and public perceptions of science. So can you talk to us a little bit about um, how pop culture images of space travel and science fiction images of space travel uh, help shape our ideas of who can actually work as a mathematician, a physicist, or an astronaut? Yeah, and I think, you know, this is something that's definitely been talked about in Bitch a lot and really well, probably better than I could do it here, but um, just like the importance of representation, it really, really matters. I'm probably going to get into trouble for talking about the Martian Chronicles, but um, I read it for the first time this summer, and so... That's that's the series by Ray Bradbury, the classic yes, sci-fi series, yeah. the Martian Chronicles, yeah. And so, like, I know that... Every time I talk about, you know, sexism in science fiction from that era, I just get attacked about, like, you can't hold it to the same standards as today, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, if he can imagine, if he could imagine this, this Martian race where people, you know, cook dinner in this silver lava and they have dust that cleans the house for them, you know, like, all these things, like, but he couldn't imagine that like one of the crew members was a woman, you know, like that kind of thing. And I think it's like, so all these waves of men go up to Mars in that book. And then there's a one line about like, everybody knew who the first women would be. And they send up, you know, like a rocket full of prostitutes. So, <laughs> um, so anyway, so I'm going off on a tangent, but I think that, um, you know, many diverse roles for women is really important. I guess I feel two ways about it, that both talking about Mars and space travel is really important for fostering an interest in science and thinking about the world beyond our own. And then on a personal level, I'm like, who has time to think about space when we have to worry about, you know, uh, making rent this week or uh, having enough food and uh, Mm -hmm. having, you know, all sorts of sort of real life practical issues that are happening in our lives right now, thinking about issues about equality in space in a future possible trip can seem so far off and so distant. Yeah. And, you know, I sort of brought that up in my interview. I was asking, you know, does, does focusing on this very sort of long range, huge project in outer space sort of take away from the urgency of problems on earth? Um, And in all the candidates that I talked to were really clear about how you know, well, first of all, it's not one or the other, you know, we can work on multiple things at once, um, you know, which we find in feminism, like just because we want to work on gender, like pay equality doesn't mean that we can't, you know, fight sexual assault, things like that, like we can work on multiple things at once. Um, And it's also not like we can just take that lump sum of money that's going to space right now and like put it into pre-K education or something, you know, like that's not how it works. Um, and also the, the candidates I interviewed talked a lot about the benefits that we get from the space program, you know, here on Earth, like all the, you know, the medical technologies and everything that's come from the space program. And Sue Ann talked about, you know, any colony on Mars is going to have to be extremely sustainable. Um, and sustainability looks different on Mars because the resources are different. But, you know, there's a lot of research going into you know, hydroponic crops and sort of, you know, sustainable ways to grow food 
and to produce fuel. And so thinking about those things and how they might work for a Mars colony, that research will benefit Earth as well. So talk to me more about the women who want to be on this Mars One trip. I mean, these are people who will have to not only orient their entire lives around someday leaving for Mars, but as you mentioned, it's a one-way ticket. They're saying goodbye to their whole lives here. What what motivates people to do that? Yeah, um, well, I think, you know, something that Kelly said really struck me because people ask them a lot about, like, but it's forever, you know, like, you're doing this forever. And Kelly was like, what does forever really mean for me? You know, like, by the time I go, it's maybe like 30 years. So she just thinks about it like someone who retires to Florida and doesn't go back to Brooklyn again. Or, um, you know, it's like, people are like, you're gonna die on Mars. And they forget that, you know, I, hopefully there are these years in between where they're, you know, setting up this research outpost and, you know, contributing to something that they really believe in. Because everyone I talk to feels very strongly that it's, um, it's important, you know, for the human species to be a multi-planet species. And they have various reasons for feeling that. But, um, you know, they w- would be really honored to be, to be a part of that. And it's not, you know, they're not being really, they're not being callous about leaving. And they're going to leave people they love. And they're going to leave the earth they love, but they feel like this is a way that they can really contribute and that they have, you know, the right personality to, to be successful. Let's talk about one more thing before you go, and that's the way that this program is funded. So we talked at the beginning about how uh, the Mars One system is looking for people who aren't traditional astronauts to get a more diverse mix to make a potential actual Mars colony. And so the way that the, that the trip is going to be funded is by producing a reality show that will be back here on Earth and advertising associated with that reality show around the trip. This to me sounds like such a science fiction idea. I just, (laughs) you know, it brings to mind uh, sort of a dystopian future where we're all sitting and watching uh, a reality (laughs) show about uh, people potentially dying in space and wondering, you know, who's going to murder who on the spacecraft? Are they going to live for the first day on Mars? Um, what, What do you think about turning all of this... You know, this. In in the one hand, it's a real like boon for science. On the other hand, it's going to be turned into a reality show. Yeah, and you know, I think that there's that Mars One is sort of trying to change how they talk about it to like it's a documentary. Um, and I mean, hopefully, it won't be as dramatic as as all that <laughs> you said. Um, but I think you know there is like some some precedent for the media being, you know, documenting astronaut training. Um, and I know that the, the Canadian Space Agency has put some astronaut training videos, you know, on their website before as they go through simulations and trials. Um, and, you know, Kelly in the interview even talked about it as, you know, George Mallory, has, you know, did a summit of Mount Everest that was financed by a documentarian. Um, so, like, that was his way to get there. Um, so, but I, you know, not everybody I talked to was like super jazzed about that part of it. Um, it depends, I think, on, on their personality and how sort of private they are. Um, but they did talk about how it'll be a really great way for people to see what it really takes to get ready to go to space um, and to see all the, the, you know, the different things that you wouldn't think about that you'll have to deal with in microgravity and to be really... Um, you know, to be invested in how hard people are working and the things that have to be overcome to get people into space. Thanks to writer Jessica Franken. You can follow her on Twitter at JES3ICA. Her feed is a weird mix of science insights and rants about women's basketball. So human space travel to Mars or galaxies far, far away seems like a dream these days, especially when we have so many day-to-day problems to grapple with right here on Earth. But it's still interesting and important to think about space. Humans have always looked to the sky as a way to understand our world. Whether we're using hand-built telescopes 
or pure imagination. Whether or not we ever get to Mars, it matters right now who gets to be a part of that consciousness, who we think of as capable astronauts and rocket scientists, what possible worlds we can imagine existing generations from now. Women have often been excluded and erased from the history of space travel. We need to make sure we're an integral part of the future. podcast listeners, have you noticed that we don't shy away from tough conversations and that we cover just about every topic you can think of? That's because as a nonprofit independent media outlet, Bitch Media is entirely supported by thousands of folks like you, not some big corporation or a deep-pocketed donor with a hidden agenda. If you love tuning in each week, please pitch in at bitchmedia.org/podcast and be sure to mention propaganda or backtalk when you donate. We'll read some of our listener love on the air during the next shows. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening. 